0: Hi, welcome to the Style Forum Happy Hour. This episode was recorded in January during PT Uomo, one of the most important menswear fairs in the world.
1: All right, welcome to the Style Forum Happy Hour. We have a lot of really interesting guests with us today. What's your name? What are you drinking for the happy hour? Uh,
2: my name is Matt Hranek, and I have a, I'm the founder, editor of William Brown Magazine, WM Brown. And it seems like I'm having a Strega Manhattan, which Check. is quite delicious. We'll call it that. Yeah? And you?
3: I'm Ava Kuhl. I'm the uh, owner and founder of Epilet. Uh, and I'm just drinking straight bourbon.
0: Shh, hardcore.
3: Yeah, it's, it's like nice.
1: that. That's <laughs> how you roll. Uh,
0: my name is Eric Nambi. I'm editor-in-chief of Plazoma Magazine and co-owner of... Götrich bespoke tailors and the bags in Sweden. I'm drinking straight up
1: bourbon. And I'm Peter and I'm the host of the show. I'm the co-host, let's call it co-host because you guys are hosts too. Mm-hmm. And the topic for today is gonna be about print. <laughs> print magazines, where they've come from, where they are now and what the future of them is. Matt, you've worked with print magazines for a long time. I've worked with print, legacy print, we'll call it, okay.
2: for about 25 years on one capacity or the other. It's, I started out as a, a photographer, and I just loved magazines. And I particularly loved Condé Nast magazines. And my dream as a young photographer was to work for Vogue and Vanity Fair and GQ and House and Garden and All Mademoiselle, Glamour, bring it on.
1: Wow, you're bringing it back.
2: So when I moved to New York after university, um, I started assisting photographers and mostly concentrating on magazine editorial photographers because I just wanted to be around magazines. I was inspired by them. I love
1: them. Can you give us some context? What time was this? What what year was this? So I moved to
2: New York in 1989. Okay. I was a snot-nosed, freshly graduated uh, kid from RIT in Rochester, where I studied art history and photography. You
1: knew everything.
2: I knew that I needed to get to New York and be surrounded by magazine editorial life and just kind of immerse myself in it
1: immediately. And what was the magazine life like at that time? Was it booming? Was it?
2: Well, print media in general at the time, was it was the kind
1: of glory years, right?
2: It was sort of post 80s decadence to early 90s stability. It was the Clinton years. There was a lot of money around. There was a lot of enthusiasm and optimism and a lot of creativity. I mean, if I would say at that time when I was visiting the Condé Nast offices as a young assistant, and I had friends who were also young assistants working there, um, it was one of the most inspiring places to be and because it was just a powerhouse
1: of talent.
2: You know, that was the Mecca. New York. That, the House of Condé.
1: The House of Condé. If you
2: worked for Condé Nast, that was the end all. Like, that was like, I've made it, I am, uh, I'm entrenched, I'm going nowhere. And and while Cy Cy Newhouse was alive, the Newhouse family owns Condé Nast, it was just an intensely inspiring place.
1: That's a big umbrella under which many magazines lie, right?
2: Sure. I mean, Hearst had it, maybe still has it, is trying to have it. I guess Time Inc. was a big, and there was a few independents, but like the The apex in those days was to be, I don't care if you're a photographer or a writer or a stylist or a journalist, was to work for Condé Nast, art directors, editors, and chiefs. You know, And um, I have a feeling a lot of the power of that is gone now.
1: Yeah, speaking to that, I mean, you guys have probably noticed the same thing over the course of time, but especially since the 90s and the internet, the decline of print has steadily progressed to the point now where it's a rare thing. And if you have a magazine, it's, it's something you display on your coffee table. It's something to be uh, kept, something to be... Uh, well, I, I will say yeah. that
2: when I was growing up, looking at GQ and House and Garden and Vogue and stuff like that, People in Vanity Fair, people kept magazines. People did not recycle anything. It was kept, and there would be these inventories of vintage magazines around. And not unlike National Geographic, which was the obvious one you know which I basically was just looking for topless pictures of native women <laughs> quite unapologetically I feel
3: like there's other magazines you could have found more than that those were not in my Uncle Rudy's okay. basement oh, that I God. was able to find National Geographic Museum would be like awesome Borneo <laughs>
2: um, but you know they I have
1: stretch necks but whatever
2: who cares I was a pre-pubescent a looking for looking yeah. for I <laughs> look at the family of man books for nudes at that age <laughs> so but you know there were, they were these, there were these inventories of like vintage piles of magazines that you would just pour over and pour over and pour over. And uh, I, I just loved, I just loved that.
1: Did that end after a certain time? Do you think things started to get recycled or not viewed as highly as they did before? I think, and you
2: know, this is purely my opinion. But I think as the digital age changed the format on which we see and have seen media and information, this thing was not the end all anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think it started to kind of distill itself in a much more kind of general way, right? Because then all of a sudden, all these magazines were chasing the money because the money was being filtered to digital space and they understood the power of that and they were true analytics and you know influencer markets and all of a sudden all this ad base that drove the production of these magazines.
1: If you wouldn't mind speaking to that for just a moment being that you have experience in that field both you Eric and you Matt have you felt the pinch of ad revenue moving from Print to where it only was, to digital? In other words, do you, do you find it difficult to find that? Or do you not look for that at all? I can only speak
2: to my experience in the kind of legacy world and how that navigated. Yeah. And I think it's an old-fashioned kind of broken system, the old ad publishing sensibility. Um, so I think with William Brown, we navigated and approached it differently. There's very traditional old-school real estate that I like to sell quote-unquote ads to, which is back cover, inside front cover. But I was, I found the ads to, to be so disruptive within the internal part of the magazine design that I have made a very conscious effort to not have ads within the interior of the editorials.
1: You eschewed that purposely.
2: <clears throat> I do that purposely because I... Just want this to be a consistent visual dialogue that that suddenly isn't going to have like a Princess Cruises (laughs) ad. As much as I would take their money. But you know, like I'm trying to I feel that, you know, first of all, I'm not a generalist. This is not a generalist point of view. This is a very niche point of view. And I'm sure I wouldn't get the Princess Cruises of the world anyway, but like I want to keep the visual dialogue solid and consistent. Without the disruption of ad, so we have been scrappy finding other ways of revenue stream. What about you, Eric?
0: Well, uh, I come from a pretty different place than Matt. I I just got into the business when it was um, on the like in its worst decline. <laughs> uh, so I mean, when I took over as editor in chief of Plaza in like that was only three years ago now uh things were already looking bleak for the print business to say the least um so we had to or i had to uh come up with ideas of how to stay relevant one thing is that we do a very very niche magazine which is our strength i think because uh in was it
1: was it not that way before was it too it broad? was that
0: way before but I think I made it even slightly more geeky when I, when I took over. <laughs> so became even more focused on, on the details, which our readers seem to appreciate. I mean, they, they pick up the magazine because they want to read about some obscure uh, you know, hat maker in Tokyo who does everything by hand, as his grandfather taught him back in, like, 1935 or whatever. Uh, and this is the strength and this is what i've tried to uh capitalize on and work and and you know do something further from from what's been done so that's one one way of handling the the changing markets but also trying to uh integrate more ways of of exposure so the magazine is one thing but we my idea has been to use the magazine as sort of a core and then build layers around it with other things that could create revenue so it doesn't such as um i've been working ever since i started to to get a proper digital platform and that is still underway. you know hasn't happened yet but um to take good examples of uh, companies that that i Think do it really well is um, for example Mr. Porter they have sort of an editorial uh, side to it as well and they kind of create revenue through retail and also to, through advertisement marketing and uh, we also do a bit of events and things so the the idea is that the magazine should stay as, as it is but uh, of course in the long run just selling print ads will probably not suffice so we would like to add like layers of business to that core and the the core is the magazine and that's our uh you know our our core of confidence
2: i I agree i think that is a very modern and thoughtful approach to how to get it made right Is there's you know the, the 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 Traditional revenues and revenue streams have just dried up and disappeared, and that's why I think a lot of legacy publishing was not smart enough to pivot. They they didn't they weren't nimble enough to realize like, no wait wait, Cartier is not interested in giving us money anymore because they can give it to they could take that budget and give it to a digital space and ten influencers with actually real return. Mm-hmm. But there was I think a level of arrogance with all that like right. like. No, they got to keep coming to us. Well, guess what? They don't. And they didn't. And they left. And that's why it all kind of is falling apart, you know? And I agree with Eric. I think that um, using the magazine as a platform is sort of my same philosophy. Like, here is this thing where content lives, and these images live, and there's a platform for words and pictures. But, like, what is the other stuff that we can do and supply outside of that in terms of collaborations and events and consultations and, you know, uh, all that kind of fun stuff?
1: I was reading a really interesting article from the vice president of Hearst Magazines in the UK, and he said something that struck me because it reminded me of something that I've seen done in both of your cases, and that is to not simply make a magazine, but to create a world within that magazine. So shopping is included, or a lifestyle is included, or events are included, or workshops are included. A digital space is included, not just the magazine. Have you guys found that to be the case? The one thing that I noted, like, for example, is the events that you'll have, Eric, or, for example, the events that you'll have or the trips that you'll take, uh, it makes it not just a magazine, but the whole event becomes part of the magazine where people are following the event maybe as it's happening and then maybe seeing what the story was later on, the event that happens here during Pity, and maybe the next magazine will report on that. Have you found that to be the case, Eva? Not just, for example, as a as a store having a physical location, but having a a digital world where more is included. Maybe the lifestyle of the store.
3: Yeah, I think for like for both of these publications, the idea of like fostering a community is really important. Um, And I remember, like in terms of product collaborations, I feel like Monocle magazine was the first place that I saw. Mm-hmm. Where they were really um, proactive about doing it, maybe like ten years ago or so. That's when they were putting out like their collaborations with uh, Head Porter, those like special edition bags. Um, that stuff was always amazing, and I always admired uh, a lot of what they did. Um, and to your point, like, do you feel like Monocle Magazine is also taking that same strategy where they're not disrupting the flow with ads too much?
2: Well, first of all, I am a very, very big Tyler Brule fan, yeah. and I worked with Tyler from issue two of Wallpaper. Wow. Wow. Yeah. wow, And um, I admired him on many levels. And I think his kind of business philosophy was disruptive and forward-thinking and great. I mean, the first thing I remember is when everyone was knocking on the doors to buy ads in Wallpaper. Mm -hmm. Tyler was like, "Mm, your ads are ugly.
3: Um, (laughs) We don't want
2: them. But we'll produce them for Mm -hmm. you. Hence the birth of Wink Media, which oh. is a genius idea, right? right? Like create ads in the style and the format of the magazine. Oh, so, it. Yeah. so it yeah. seems
1: like as you're turning the page,
0: it's just part of the magazine.
1: That's right.
2: That
0: is so cool. We've uh, actually started producing some ads for some of our customers as well. Really? Because they asked us, they they, you know, they trust us with knowing the right kind of aesthetics and you know how to present it to our readers. So yeah, it's a good way of working a, together.
3: That's such a great idea. You know, because I like what you said really it really resonated. You know, I don't like I mean I do I consume most of my media digitally now and, and sometimes like the only print magazines that I'm really encountering are like the doctor's office. You know, <laughs> like, kind of in the waiting AARP.
2: room.
3: <laughs> but even still, yeah, to read like a completely mainstream magazine, it's jarring to like go through there and try to wade through all of the ads.
2: To your monocle point. Yeah. You know, I think when Monocle became a thing and also focused on less hyper style and more almost like the geopolitical climate and things and how that Mm -hmm. I actually what Monocle did and still just makes my head spin like there's so much information being given to you but I do think Tyler's business um, philosophy in terms of collaboration and creating storefront and creating retail and radio Mm -hmm. not a website, right? not a digital. Like, he kind of rejected that Mm. and created a a bloody radio station that everybody (laughs) wanted to listen to. And then he sold them the radios. Like, that's, I think, a very inspiring um, philosophy for that stuff. Um, And I think, and I have always felt that, you know, Tyler was a genius when it came to that. He also surrounded himself with incredibly talented people who worked very, very hard for him, because he allowed them to do what they were hired to do. And I think people were inspired by that. And I think that's that's sort of our job, in a way.
1: You think digital, the, the move from print to digital, from brick and mortar to digital, do you think the same factors have contributed to that, or is it different? For example, do you think it's just People were conditioned to look for things in the digital space and they stopped looking for it, or brick and mortar or print just stopped giving things or offering things that were relevant?
3: No, I mean, you know, in terms of digital and brick and mortar um, retailing, I mean, the biggest issue is that everything is always available all the time uh, digitally. So I would imagine that would kind of speak to the print magazine experience as well, because sometimes you just you know that there's so much out there that there's less urgency to, uh, to purchase something when it's physically in front of you. You know, the idea of like going to a store and maybe if it was 15 years ago, you'd take a look around and say, oh, this is cool. I'm going to buy this and take this home with me. But nowadays you're just like, uh, look, there's like three people waiting for the cash till. I'm just going to order this on Amazon later and it's going to show up at my door on Monday.
2: Yeah, right. That's a problem. It's a prob- I don't think it's a problem when you're buying toilet paper, <laughs> Yeah. right? Like I do think the, the beauty of Amazon is like, oh, where's my favorite German deodorant? Oh, right. there it is. It'll be there on <laughs> Tuesday. Yeah. But what I, I love about the retail experience, which I experienced at Appalachia when I first went in Brooklyn, is the discovery. It's the discovery of the edit. It's the discovery of the thing you didn't know you needed that, um, that I like. Like when Drake's first opened, I used to walk into Drake's and be like, of course I need another pocket square. <laughs> you know, like I, it, it, I was inspired by the people working there, the landscape of the store, the edit, the thoughtfulness, the point of view, and it wasn't sticky. You know, I didn't need like, hey, can I get you a glass of, can I get you a bourbon or something? You know, it was just sort of like, here we are. We're this uh, hodgepodge group of well-styled guys, all wearing Drake's, and you wanted to be those people. I mean, for me, and I don't know if I'm just an old fart or being kind of romantic about it, but there was a time when retail inspired and, and did that. And you know, a lot, of, a lot of the time, I think with the digital space buying, and I think you know, I'd be interested in what Eric has to say in terms of like his personal sensibility of it, but I don't really find myself digging deep and searching for stuff unless I have an, a very clear idea of what that thing is. And
0: it's normally deodorant or toilet paper. Derek? Well, the only things I look at online is uh, mainly menswear. And uh, I don't really have a reason to to really dig or look for something either because I purchased a tailoring shop. So I just have made there. (laughs) Right. But um, I used to, though. I, I used to be one of those people I could sit hours on end, just looking for the special, perfect thing that I had made up in my mind that should exist somewhere. Would you say it's because
1: magazines, stores became too generalized, that people were no longer impressed, they were no longer... Uh, they no longer got that feel of, yes, I never knew that existed, but I need it.
3: Well, I think they could, have, they could afford to be generalized before. When that was the mm-hmm. place, when you got all your news from a magazine and you got all your wares from a store, you could afford to, you know, just stock all sorts of things. And then a, a customer or reader would come in and find what they wanted. Nowadays, you have to be far more specialized and provide a, a real experience that they're going to feel a part of.
0: And there are pros and cons to the, to the death of retail. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the brick and mortar stores that make it, they make it on merits. I mean, they, there's a reason why they, why they're still around. Mm-hmm. They provide something more than just uh, like a place where you shop stuff. It's, yeah. uh, uh, it's usually more exactly uh, like Drake's, for example, which is a beautiful example. It's uh, it's a fantastic store and it's a fantastic atmosphere and they created a whole like, world around their brand. You can, this one shop stop for, for what they do. And I think that's uh, hopefully the future of retail. Well, I think that also
2: to that point, it's that, okay, if you lived in the middle of nowhere in Arkansas and you weren't were exposed A great kind of retail space. And so you had no idea. And what I like about the digital dialogue, and what I like about, particularly about Instagram, is I think Legacy Publishing at a point was only speaking to the coasts, right? They were speaking to LA, Los Angeles, uh, sorry, LA, New York, Chicago, maybe Miami, but there was this whole swath, swath in the middle. Like if you took a drive to Atlanta and you made a hard ride across country. Like nobody was talking to those guys. And those guys have money. Those guys have style. They're hungry for the education and confidence of like what's out there. And that's what I like about the digital dialogue that corresponds with the magazine, right? So if you're a guy in St. Louis or Boise or, you know, you're in Arkansas and suddenly you're exposed to all this stuff through the digital dialogue and then you create this literal dialogue, with Instagram. Like, I wake up to, I don't know, 20, 30 DMs every month. I answer every single one of those and I, I track where they are. And when we did the first issue of the magazine, which we literally mailed out ourselves thousands of magazines, you know, it was like St. Louis, Boise, Denver, Panhandle of Texas, you know, it was like, wow, I love those markets. I, they're much less jaded and more hungry and more interested. Yeah, yeah. And I love I love that dialogue. Actually, my wife Yolanda, who was responsible for the distribution mostly of the product, said, there's a, guy, a lot of guys named Justin in Texas. <laughs> 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 we addressed a lot of magazines to Justin, Justin in Texas. Really? Yeah. Um, but I also think with that exercise, we learned about the true demographic of who was paying attention and listening and interested in Hungary. Ooh, would you mind sharing that? I think this, mi- this swath of middle America.
1: Oh, the underrepresented.
2: Yeah, where, you know- suddenly Or was like,
1: overlooked is probably well, a better- Also, there, there was
2: not an, ele- there's a reasonable, reasonably elevated view, at least I like to imagine it in the magazine, but it's tempered by high-low. Like, nobody loves chicken wings and canned beer more than me even though like there's a shot in you know there's a house in the wine country of bordeaux right like but it's about that contrast and i think there was a demographic that understood the high-low and liked the difference in the exchange where like maybe they were never going to be in a piece of bespoke suiting but they can learn to pour and make a negroni and take a picture and dm it to me and suddenly you're in a community. Yeah. You're in this inclusive world, not an exclusive world, which a lot of legacy publishing was fueling itself as mm. exclusive. Aspirational. Yeah. I'm all for aspirational, but I'm more for I'm more for the idea of that the aspiration is inclusive. Like we all benefit from the collective success of each other. You know, I'm not gonna be you know, hands off like, well, I don't know if I should talk to you because you're going to take an idea. Dude, you could have all my ideas. If you can germinate and create something from those ideas, congratulations, do it. And um, to your point of like seeing stuff live, right, what Instagram does, like the train trip we did or how you guys how covers PT. Like there used to be a time where the magazines wanted exclusivity. You couldn't see it anywhere. No one on set could talk about it until it was published three months later. First of all, that's very old fashioned. And I think when you see it live, you get excited about it and it creates momentum. And PS, people forget about it, and then all of a sudden it's in the magazine and they're like, oh my God, yeah, that was that trip.
1: Right.
2: It's it's not lost. It actually creates this wave of momentum in general, I found where people kind of get excited about it. And like the insider track that they're being kind of exposed to it in real time. Right, right
1: almost uh, germinating this kind of anticipation of actually seeing the print publication, more coverage. You can get snippets of it in real time. Yeah. And then when the full coverage comes out, then you remember those little 15-second clips that you saw on Instagram stories or.
2: Well, PS, I could never. I could have filled 60 pages of imagery from that damn Belmont train story. But the reality is, it isn't going to work that way. So the fact that it had this Instagram dialogue outside that just reinforces the the idea and the execution of the idea, which I think is way more fun. And I think the best compliment I got is a really good friend of mine is a guy called Bruce Pask. And Bruce is the men's buyer at Burger Goodman. Bruce and I grew up in magazines together. He was an assistant at GQ. I was an assistant working photographers with GQ. And we grew up together. We've known each other for 25 years. And I got back from that trip, and he was like, that was the most clever thing you did. And I was like, well, what are you talking about? He was like, to reveal all this stuff real time, always anticipating that I said, I know. Bruce said, I know I was going to see it in the magazine eventually. But it was so refreshing to see it not follow within the the typical routine on how magazines produce stuff. And I did it that way, because I hated the way it was done before. And as I said to my wife, when we were kind of building a magazine, and she comes from a very traditional design history with magazine, at one point she said, you know, you can't do that that way. I was like, I can do whatever the hell I want. Like, I, this is my magazine. It's your magazine. And I don't need to follow in the, the footsteps of a legacy format selfishly right um i don't have to answer to anyone yet so we're just going to kind of plug away and kind of celebrate the stuff we love
1: has plaza uh, noticed any uh uptick in interest for example during these plaza womo shows where uh, people post and plaza will repost videos of the event and then of course it gets in the next six months or the next three months, the magazine comes out and more coverage is given. Have you noticed an uptick in interest in
0: physical magazines, digital downloads? I mean, it all works in, in a, uh, you have to excuse me. I'm the only non-American present, so English is not my first language. You do pretty good. but, uh, but, but it. Uh, than <laughs> <semester>. <laughs> well, I might have had one drink less than you. So. Okay. <laughs> uh, but yeah it all works in sort of an intertwined way so uh like of course social media helps and the magazine helps and it, it's hard to say what actually uh i think they both work
1: in concert
0: yeah in concert with each other so of course um as matt said uh it's not like you're spoiling anything by posting about it online beforehand uh i think it actually yeah It carousels it, rather, and it becomes like, yeah, it comes in waves. So, uh, for example, Pity, it's a big thing for our magazine. We cover Pity, we do like a big part about Pity street style, and we do a big part about our party that we throw here uh, twice a year uh, that we did last night, but I was too sick to attend. But I heard it was nice. You were there, you
1: were there for a minute or two. For like
0: five minutes. Yeah. (laughs) Before I had to go lie down again. But, uh, yeah, and that party is like, it's a big thing. It's sort of your Belmont. uh, Yeah.
2: Well, everyone wants to go to that party, by the way.
3: Yeah.
2: People
0: crash that party. That was a a
3: fantastic party.
0: Yeah, they do. And it it was like, I think probably yesterday was like eight or nine hundred people passing through the palace. In one of the most beautiful
1: palazzos in Florence.
0: Yeah, so it's it's like a fantastic place to get good photo coverage, and uh, we did. We had a lot of people posting from it. Just like um, I mean, it's a pretty big affair. So, but that doesn't spoil the because people still wait. Like, who made it to the to the pages in Plaza Alma? Will I be there? Yeah. Uh, you never know. So <laughs> it's like uh, yeah, people. Uh, Anticipate and and look out for the magazine when it comes and like uh, a lot of our buyers, I I know a lot of our readers they go and buy it like right away and see if there's someone they know and like all these people in this little microcosm that's become sort of hashtag menswear celebrities (laughs) and and like oh yeah I know that guy it's the Hong Kong uh, uh, like store owner that probably no one outside of this bubble knows of but yeah. It's it's sort of an interesting interesting how it like works together like uh, social media, digital coverage, and and the actual print media.
1: One thing I noticed that with the decline of print magazines, I will say more than the past. It's true that man, we had National Geographic's dating back 10 years, and Architectural Digests were viewed as holy for a long time. But now you don't see that too much anymore because people don't have that. But the ones that they do have, like Monocle and yours, mm-hmm. can fetch quite a bit on the secondary market. Oh yeah. And is that because it's so niche? Is that because it's so directional? Why well, do you think I, that I, is? I, I mean, I, I, don't I don't understand
2: why a lot of people collect many things. But, I mean, I, I obsess about collecting some things. Mostly barbers, but how many I, do you have? I have. My wife may be listening, Eric. Oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's dozens and dozens. Official. Yeah. And official um, number. But you know, I think it's interesting when you go online and you see like issue one of wallpaper to bring back the wallpaper right. going for like four hundred bucks. Or let's think about the early of independent prints like Visionaire. And Visionaire would do a collab with, like, Vuitton and Vito and make a sleeve. And that, like, we we have, like, Yolanda was buying all those. Like, that, uh, and they're worth a fortune now. I think, yeah. I think people are nostalgic. I think people are looking back at how stuff was done. Um, and then if you, let's say, you're a fan of Monocle, you're like, well, I should, of course, have every issue of wallpaper. And that's the historical sensibility of it. You know, I think when, when the physical downgrade of these things happened, right? Where paper had to be cheaper, uh, photography was less important, the photographer you were hiring was less important. Uh, The execution of the storytelling became less important because costs had to keep going down. To maintain profitability. Maintain profitability and sustainability. So you would not have some fantastic Pulitzer Prize winning writer in Vanity Fair. Well, maybe Vanity Fair because great and had amazing budgets, but like Brand Magazine X because they couldn't pay that guy $275 a word anymore, or $5 a word, or whatever those guys are making. Or photographers like, you know, like Bruce Weber and Steven Meisell, like Andy Leibovitz, like this is other level. Like I work for people like this, and the amount of money that was spent on photo shoots would make your head spin. I mean, hundreds of thousands of dollars.
1: And for, that's not including the talent. It's not including the talent.
2: For for an editorial photo shoot. That, and, and many of them were produced and killed.
1: Not with, just many images were left on the floor, no, but just. Stories killed.
2: You know, foals. Wow. Like, I mean, navigating as a young assistant through all those magazines from Vanity Fair to. Vogue and having friends in all those kind of interesting places and hearing the buzz of all that. was just make your mind, just, I mean, your head spin. It's wow. like crazy.
3: I, I was always insanely envious of this. I got it all secondhand, but a lot of my friends did work in journalism, did work at Condé Nast. They talked about Uncle Si all the time. Uncle Si. Uncle Si. Cash Who's checks this? Uncle Cy.
2: So Cy, Cy Newhouse, who House. was essentially the. Oh, yes. What so what would yeah. be his, what was Si's title? Editorial director or, you know, owner. Let's just call it Spade's yeah, spade. Bay. He was an owner, um, but I'll tell you one quick funny story. Do tell. Okay, I was working with a photographer named Eric Bowman, who Eric was sort of like the pen of his generation, right? And he did a lot of celebrity portraits and lifestyle shoots, and you know, so we would jet off to like Ivanka Trump or the Ferragamos, or you know, it was like all that kind of stuff. A lot of high-end production. And he was Swedish, still is Swedish, actually. And he was quite frugal, OK? So he never wanted anything to do with any of the occurrency of the shoot. Like, and as his first assistant, I became responsible for a lot of the production end of the shoot. Keeping things under budget? Keeping things in check and paying for stuff. I would show up with a dossier for an assignment, right? And there was a little cash window. I condenced wow. and they would hand over piles of cash. <laughs> Physical <laughs> cash. Tens of thousands of dollars. Wow. Right? And I'd be just like, damn, okay. So I would like put it in my satchel and I'd go and I'd be the guy on the shoot saying, like, you know, pay for lunch and do out the cash and da da da. A lot of the time, because Eric was quite frugal, we didn't spend all the money. And I would say, Well, Eric, we're, you know, we still have fifteen grand left over and he would say he would say, Oh well, bring it back to the cash window. So I'd go up, I'd take the train, go up to Condé Nast. And they would the, the the girls at the window were like, You didn't spend all the money? Oh do you know how irritating this is gonna be to re-? So we at so the next job we were like, let's spend all this money. You know, which is not the right way to do all this. That is the you know, it became such a huge machine loaded it sounds. Bloated. And um now, you know, even at Con- my last few years at Condé Nast Traveler, like we you know, we were still interested in producing beautiful imagery and good content and thoughtfulness, but there wasn't the money to do it. So we figured, like, how do, how do we do it in a scrappy way? Like, why don't on our next vacation that we're paying for, we bring a pile of watches and jewelry and clothes and do environmental still lifes and da da so, at least there was this kind of diversity within the visual landscape of it, you know, even if it was shot in Miami, it was better than a studio in New York and then that's the way we did it and and, and we kind of created this a la carte system in terms of editorial, which was very, very strict in terms of the budget. It wasn't bloated, but we didn't want to sacrifice the quality in the execution.
3: What year was that? the post bloat date?
2: So I would say. I would say six years ago, it started. Oh, wow. You know, Yolanda became the creative director at Condé Nast Traveler. Pilar Guzman became the editor in chief. They're, they're thick as thieves. They have this whole editorial history. Mm-hmm. I came in as this kind of makeshift editor, like by purely by accident. And we had to figure out how to get it done, because they didn't want the quality to suffer. And the writing was on the wall that it was going to end somehow.
1: May I ask, what was the writing on the wall? Was it a sign? Was it several signs? Yeah, people
2: being fired.
1: Okay, that's pretty clear. Right?
2: Staff disappearing. Mm -hmm. You know, hearing buzz about like, oh, we have to trim this year's budget for one magazine by $2 million. You know what that is? All those high-tier editors that have been there for years and making very, very good money with full benefits, et cetera, they're the first to go, and we saw that Yolanda was chicken little for years. Like this is all going to end, you know. And then finally, it just—at least for the Consulate Office, uh, the Consulate Traveler Offices—it um, did end. And and I remember when Yolanda got the phone call, we were in Greece on vacation, and I saw her face just drop. And I looked at her, and she was like, mm-hmm. and I walked up and I said, "Congratulations. Now we could do." whatever the hell we want. And I think what was happening with the bloat is that people were getting comfortable, complacent. I found myself doing the same thing. Like, oh, this is great. Of course, Condé's going to fly me to Switzerland and Geneva and cover watch markets. And great, and eat and dine and take car services. And all of a sudden, I was like, this is wrong. (laughs) This is not sustainable.
1: You were riding that train for a while, but at the time you were like, this is it's probably crazy gonna train. end soon. As much as I really
2: loved it, as much as I took advantage of it, there was a part of me that felt like, this Is this just making me too soft? Is this just am I just turning into that guy that like is feeding off the teat of this like expense account and that's all I really care about? And so it was it was good that it ended for us. Because then this created another, I think, far more interesting chapter.
0: Yeah. So did you experience that you got some of that edge that you might have been like feeling like you were it was slipping away from you? You got that back when you went on your own?
2: Yeah, because I had to be I had to hustle. Right.
0: Yeah. You I found to, your mojo.
2: I had to be smarter. I had to be quicker. I had to be more nimble. I had to use my resources. I had to, you know, be more careful. You know, to get it to get it all done, and also it was inspiring because finally I could say to myself, oh, "Well, if I want to do ten pages on vintage barbers, I'm going to do ten pages on vintage barbers." Or if I want to work with a photographer that I care about and like, let's say like J- Jamie Ferguson, like I don't have to go through any hierarchy of art directors and editors achieved to see if this guy could be hired. Just reach out
1: to him personally.
2: Come on, Jamie, what do you want to do with us? That's fun. It it just made it all fun again. And it was exciting because um, we were not necessarily creating something new, because I don't think a lot of the stuff is new. But the approach for us
0: became fresh again. I guess the packaging of it all is new. So even though, like, content-wise, some of the things might have been seen before, but not in this way as you do it. That's what I really, like, one of the reasons I wanted to put you in our magazine, which we did in the last Which is years. an honor. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I, I kind of admire what you do in that way. Thank uh, you. Go your own way and do something unique in, in the print business, which is, like, actually even starting a print magazine today is, uh, it's daring, I would say.
1: But it uh, involves some chutzpah. Yeah. I will say is, that your magazine does reflect your personality. That which you reveal.
2: Very well. I'm, I think I wear myself quite vividly on my shirt sleeves. Like, I, I am sort of what you get. You know, I think I'm quite vocal and emotional and all those things. And I think there's an honesty in the presentation of the magazine and authenticity for me. It's stuff that I like, it's people that I care about, it's talent that I appreciate. Mm-hmm. And I think it's hard to punch holes in that. Like, what are you gonna say? Like, oh, I don't, well, if you don't like it, then you find another magazine. magazine. And also, n- not unlike what Eric's doing, I feel that, or even site specific curation of, uh, of retail. Like epaulette, like we don't need to be for everybody; we just need to be for that group that kind of keeps it all alive.
1: For the community
2: that enjoys it. Yeah, and that that to me is
0: um, a big part of the philosophy. I would say not only do we not need to be for everybody, I think we need not to be for everybody to be like stay relevant. That's probably the to that community. Yeah, to that community.
3: Um, I was curious, so both of you guys have really strong personal style. Um, and I do see it is a, it is a trend, especially with um, you know, kind of like uh, younger consumers of either retail or readers, um, to feel a need to personally connect to the, the brands and um, the uh, kind of entities that they interact with. Um, how strong do you think um, or how important do you think the personal connection of your readers to you as a person is? That's a
0: really good question. I yeah. have absolutely How no is idea. That? No <laughs> idea. Like, uh, un- You know, unlike Matt, I didn't start this magazine. I took over as editor in chief. So uh, there there was an editor in chief before me, and uh, his sense of style is quite different to mine. So uh, I don't know if uh, if that really influences our readers that much. I think. As when it comes to the magazine, I want the magazine to speak for itself. I don't want to be like uh i don't want my personal ideas of style to while they still may through what I choose to feature, but I don't want my personal style to to decide what the magazine uh should be. The magazine should be its own entity besides me it's What about connecting
1: to you, though, as a person, as someone who does have creative control or creative input to the magazine? How do you feel about people who read
0: the magazine connecting to you personally? well, I'm I'm happy if they feel like they do. Uh, <laughs>
2: well, I think your yeah. presence on Instagrams allow allows a personal connection. It a, does,
0: yeah. And
3: I think it. that's a that's a big deal. And you're not only I mean I've followed you on Instagram for years, so I mean you're not only a really well dressed guy, but you do like you come across as a really nice person. You know. Well,
0: I mean, wow. uh, looks are deceiving. <laughs> okay. yeah, you are. I, yes, yeah. I'm, I'm actually a really horrible, horrible <laughs> person <laughs> in real you're life. You're super
3: cruel and yeah. But, yeah. Uh, it's, uh, that's a it's a big thing and you know I, I think about like the kind of like larger magazine entities and and who would have a personal connection like that with true Well, know? i think we're, we, we live in there. a time
2: where there's so many layers of um, i don't know hedge funds that own luxury brands and you're like well what is our connection to this stuff yeah. you know i always find that i fall in love with the brand when i either see how it's made or see who owns it mm-hmm. right yeah. that is very strong in terms of how i view the brand I would say with William Brown, I've become—it's become such an extension of myself, almost as this kind of avatar, right? That for me the connection is essential, and connecting to the reader is essential for two reasons. Um, I want to know what people want more of, and I want more of, and I like having the dialogue of what people are interested in. You know, the first issue that we did, I was really, really conscientious in, about not being salesy. Like, right? there were not a lot of fashion credits. There wasn't, you know, you could buy it here, da-da-da. I mean, I was rejecting a little bit of where I came from. And the, the one bit of criticism that I got when I was having events and met guys, and they were like, yeah, we love everything in the magazine.
0: But, but where you, did we find it? You didn't yeah. tell us how to <laughs> yeah. buy it. And yeah. I was like,
2: shit. I got to tell these guys where to buy this stuff. Like, I thought I was doing the right thing. So moving forward, we're, we're you know, much more, it's not gratuitous, but it, we're much more clever about giving people resources and ideas on where to where to find the stuff. Because you sort of get caught up in your own little world where you're like, well, of course you could find all that stuff. Mm, that, that's a very, no, that's...
1: Not that's, in Arkansas. Maybe not, not in, in Boise, or, Idaho. Or,
2: you know... It, People don't have the, the fine-tuned connections or the access to stuff. And um, I thought that was, that was very interesting. And I listened to that and I, we pivoted because of that.
1: What are some things now, after viewing the history of print and looking into the future, what are some things now that are making you happy about the world of print? Your own personal world or the the world of print in general.
2: I like the fraternity of it. I like when you have Eric or uh, or you have Ben Clymer at Houdinki and these guys who are kind of producing, even Wayco at the Rake, which is a much bigger beast than all of us. But like that there is this solidarity in in the relevance of the print media, where like if we are all successful, if we all pivot, and uh, not pivot, but if we all, collaborate, we, it, uh, it becomes sustainable, and we be, all are successful. Because I'm never going to do what Plaza Omo does. And I'm never going to figure out how Rake has created this empire. All I know is what I know. But it somehow all works together. And the fraternity of that is, is very inspiring and fun. And I mean, The Rake sells my magazine on its website. The Rake, a magazine. Sells another men's magazine. <laughs> like, that would never yeah. have happened no. 20 years. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? Like, I think, I think that's great. I think it's great. I have to
1: say, as an outsider, that's something that I immediately picked up on. It was very palpable. Whenever I would see you guys together, uh, you and Wei, or you and Eric, uh, I, I would always feel that there is a, a sense of camaraderie between you guys that if one needs help the other one is happy to help and if the other one is not having fun let's see what we can do to help this guy out that's a beautiful thing to see
3: mm-hmm. it, it must be a nice cross pollination of your readers too
2: i you could only hope i mean you know i i think that Belmont trip is very interesting because you know the idea was to bring this kind of ragtag group of influential men, not influencers, together. There were a few women, but that was not the focus. But the idea that we all left that thing thick as thieves, happy, friends, family, like that was great. And that's all you could kind of ask for, right, is is that sensibility of positivity. I always say when we're kind of putting stuff together and kind of shit is hitting the fan, I'm like, no, 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 there is there is no room for negativity here. We're always moving forward. The answer is always yes. Yes, we will get it done. It has to be done. We're going to get it done. And, and God damn it, we're going to be happy on the journey. <laughs> yeah. So I think that I go into most things that way, most part of my life. And I, I don't know, it's work
0: reasonably well so but,
1: yeah By about you eric what's making you happy
0: uh right now uh actually not feeling sick anymore but <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> it's gotta be good it uh, must be the podcast yeah it you're it well the podcast yeah. or Podcasts the bourbon maybe yes yeah
1: i try and help where i can
0: well what makes me happy on a professional level or <laughs> yeah first... in the ma-
1: in the world that yeah, you're in and, i remember you saying yeah. that when you first got there three years ago things were on the downslide now things are not that way anymore and that's in itself is in, is a reason to be happy but what specifically now
0: specifically now i think uh, you know seeing people being even though so many people have predicted you know there's doom and gloom in in the predictions for both both of the lines of business i work in both like retail and, and menswear in general, like classic menswear and uh, in print. And I, I see them proved wrong every day, so that makes me happy. Uh, I, I see like people really interested in custom clothing. Uh, they, they're interested in quality and they're interested in, in, you know, tailoring traditions, craftsmanship, all of these things that I really, really love. And what turned me to to work with this full time—that uh, makes me happy. And seeing people, uh, you know, from all over the world uh, collecting our magazine, uh, like keeping all the issues uh, in their bookshelves, that makes me happy. Nice. Yeah.
3: I love, the, I love the artistry of print media these days. Um, so the last the last magazine that I bought was an issue of the Rake, uh, with uh, Ray Liotta on the cover. Mm-hmm. I picked it up at a, a store called The Bloke in Pastina, which is which is really oh excellent. yeah I love The Bloke yeah The yeah. Bloke is awesome yeah it was my first time there and um, that's what I bought and I love this magazine it's one it's it's everything about it is beautiful um, the photo shoots are great the paper is great and uh, it was something that I felt really good to to keep on a shelf and to me it felt like a really great vinyl album you know That's and good. i kind of treat it with the same the same kind of reverence that i would do with that so um
2: it's very cool i never got more irritated when i saw on the masthead of conden Nast traveler where they put at the bottom and said please recycle this max
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> and i stormed in to, to the editor in chief's office who i had the privilege of a friendship with right and i said this is absolute Bullshit. Don't recycle this magazine. Keep this magazine. Put it on a shelf. Hand it over to somebody else. It does not need to be pulped and turned into a bag for Whole Foods. Mm -hmm. Like, (laughs) I just found that so irritating. P.S. You don't have to explain to people in the 21st century to recycle paper,
0: Yeah.
2: right? And you don't have to say, basically destroy this thing and turn it into something else. Let it live as it was meant to live. And I, I was just, I'm still angry about that, but. Um, <laughs>
1: I can see the yeah, vein yeah, of your right yeah, temple pulsating.
2: Yeah. <laughs> he mad. So, um, but no, I, I, I think you—you you, things of value you should just hold on to. And if you value that
3: thing, yeah. you hold on to it. Did you seem like generally better made these days though? Like I think like uh, I'd have magazines to magazines from you guys. I'd have to and, agree. Uh, and the magazines that I tend to end up keeping, like they are like higher quality. You know, I, I sometimes I went <laughs> went to my parents' house like a couple of years ago, um, and uh, I had kept all these issues of Vibe magazine from wow. my years when I was in college. <laughs> so lots of uh, lots nice. of great features on Master P, who was real important at that time. And right. I, I'll say, like the general production and the feel of Vibe magazine in the uh, in the late '90s is not that great. Right. It's a it's not a high end experience like the Rake. So. Uh, no, but we'll, that
0: that was definitely a very important feature for us. Like. Selecting paper, uh, it needs to have the same quality of touch to it as like it should reflect the content, and and that was uh, something that was spent a lot of uh, like probably months to to choose like the the proper paper uh, count like the proper weight and you know yeah.
2: Yolanda and I are still struggling with that because we both had this kind of production background to a certain extent. And I'm still like, how can we make the colors better? How do was the paper texture relate to the experience of the magazine? I mean, we think about that stuff. You should think about that stuff, right? Like that's you know, and even if a reader picks it up and doesn't know how to articulate what it is they like about it, it becomes this kind of sub subconscious tactility that allows... Oh, they
1: know. To,
2: they know, they're like, whoa! As a consumer,
1: great. they pick it up, they flip through the pages, and they think, this is not the magazine that I'm accustomed to. It's
3: a huge difference, yeah, and I could not tell you about paperweights, or the gloss finish, or any kind of the technical details, but the magazines that you guys make and the other ones we discussed, I mean, it feels like several levels above any magazine that I was used to.
2: Maybe offline we could talk about the benefits of UV coding.
1: you know what's making me happy is uh I see a return to magazines with personality Mm. for the longest time when I first started collecting GQ magazines back in the late 80s early 90s there were specific writers that I would look for because they were they didn't water it down they, and I didn't have to necessarily agree with what they were saying, but they came across with a very distinctive personality. You knew who this writer was, the first paragraph that you read it, or you knew the photographer at the moment you saw the first page of the layout. And I haven't seen that for so long, but that's not the case with your magazine. Well,
2: that was probably the tenure of Art Cooper.
1: Yes. Which, yes, okay. it was. Exactly.
2: So, so Art Cooper was a big, strong personality. And there was no mistake, unlike uh, like Graydon Carter of Vanity Fair, that this was his point of view and this is how it was going to be approached and you were an Art Cooper writer and you were an Art Cooper photographer. and So fall in line. Strong voice. Not generalized. Strong voice. And... You know, I remember when they instit- instituted and kind of asked, like, no one could smoke in any offices anymore. And he like, <laughs> art would light a Marlboro off a Marlboro, you know? Right. <laughs> and he was like, you would still walk in his office, just yeah. clouds of smoke yeah. and an open bottle of bourbon. He was up from a different time. Yeah. You know, that had to change eventually, of course. But, like, I think when editors in chief, um, who are basically driving the train, their point of view has to be strong to, to have a successful voice. And um, my favorite editors are ones with strong voices, even if I don't always agree with their opinion of stuff. But um, it has to be that way. If it's not, then it becomes this wishy-washy thing.
1: Well, I only hope for more magazines to be made in this way because the, these magazines make me happy. And I wish you guys. All the greatest success I I see you going from success to success and it's it's uh, a nice thing to see because I don't want the future of print to die I want to see it regain its voices and to be something that is archival and that's the beauty of what I see now and that's what I hope for everyone that's great so please subscribe (laughs) <laughs> uh,
2: and uh, advertisers can reach us at'll uh, there be a you'll see a link beneath <laughs> the podcast..
1: So, yeah. yep. Thank you so much. pleasure. Yeah. Matt Thank and you, you. Eric for joining us on the podcast. You've made this fantastic. I hope that you'll come again, and I hope whoever edits this leaves nothing. <laughs>
0: grazie out mille.